have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 2. If you do not, the text will be in your bulletin. It's very interesting what a desire to keep people safe or to keep people from making serious mistakes will cause us to do. In one sense, it's very good that we're like that because it means we care about each other. We don't want to see others harm, but often at the same time we overcorrect or we get ridiculous or we go too far. It's human nature. If you want an example of this, you really don't need to look any further than the warning labels that are on certain products. Um, there's an ammonia, ammoniated window cleaner that reads, do not spray in eyes. An electric woodworking drill says, this product not intended for use as a dental drill. On hair coloring, do not use as an ice cream topping. That's why I bought it. <laughs> uh, on sleeping pills, may cause drowsiness. <laughs> or I, I love on an air conditioner, avoid dropping air conditioners out of windows. <laughs> there was a purpose behind the giving of the law to Israel through Moses in the Old Testament. When it was given, we read that it was meant to set Israel apart as a nation as a people holy unto the Lord, but it's Paul who reveals to us in the New Testament after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, after the clarity Jesus Christ brought to Scripture, that the ultimate purpose intended of the law was to magnify our need for a Savior through its revelation of our ongoing sinfulness until such time that the promised Savior came to purchase our salvation, forgive us of our sins, and justify us completely by grace through faith. The law was not given to us as a system we could use to gain the favor of God by obeying. It was given to show that we will never be able to gain God's favor by our obedience. It will never be good enough, that obedience. There will never be enough of it for a holy God. This is what Jesus began to introduce to the world or reveal during his ministry on earth in Israel. And it was so radical of a thing to proclaim so different, so unexpected, that he was crucified for it. We don't want to be saved by grace through faith. We want to earn it. But Jesus speaks a better word to us than this. Jesus did not come to reform the old way of relating to God through the law, but to end it and take its place. So let's pray and we'll begin. Father, we are thankful for your word. Here is your people Thank you for bringing us into this place together this morning. And Father, I ask that for your namesake, for the sake of your word and your truth, that you would overcome all that I am, that I might preach your word in these next moments. And please help everyone to hear and believe. I ask and pray these things in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 18 of Mark chapter 2. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, to Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And remember, the beginning of our text this morning comes on the heels of Jesus' calling of Levi, Matthew, into his fold of disciples. Jesus began building a group of men around him. And Mark, back in chapter 1, as he began to proclaim the gospel of God. Jesus is not gathering this group around himself as a simple hobby, 
As a strategy for growth, Jesus is building a whole new people of God for the world, a group of people whose sinfulness doesn't exclude them or keep them at a distance, but makes them prime candidates. Remember verse 17. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus hasn't come to ignore, to excuse, or to condone sin, but he has come to magnify God's mercy towards sinners. For this, the old way of the law has to be fulfilled and come to its appointed end. So Mark begins to teach us this about Jesus by bringing in this conversation between Jesus and the people asking him about fasting. The law of Moses required fasting only during the period leading up to the Day of Atonement. But it had become customary to the Jews over time to fast at times they deemed important, times of national mourning, things like this. Fasting had also become a part of one's repentance. One might uh, manifest their repentance of a severe sin by fasting. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, the last prophet of the old era before him, was an ascetic. He was a Nazarite given to self-denial, so he and his disciples probably fasted even more frequently. The Pharisees fasted twice a week. They saw it as a, a sign of their or proof of their personal piety. When Jesus comes proclaiming the gospel and claiming to forgive sins, his disciples are not doing this. He was apparently not instructing his disciples to fast like this. And so it brings up the question. Obviously, Jesus means to represent God, but followers of God fast. That's what the people are not understanding. That's what they do, and his followers don't do that. He responds to them by telling them essentially that there's a time and a place for fasting, but it's not now. Not while he's here. We pick it up in verse 19. And Jesus said to them, this is his answer to their question as to why his disciples do not fast. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Weddings in Israel were not like those that we have. They lasted for about a week, uh, which was a time of eating and drinking and celebrating. So nobody wanted to be fasting during a wedding. The Old Testament never referred to the Messiah as the bridegroom. The bridegroom in the Old Testament was God. The bridegroom was or I'm sorry, the bride was Israel. But Jesus says that the bridegroom now is the Son of God and the church will be called His bride, we find from now on. Jesus was claiming then even more than just being the Messiah when He refers to Himself as the bridegroom. And He wouldn't always be with Him. Jesus would be taken away. He would eventually return to the Father in heaven. If His disciples were going to fast, it would be then because they would be longing for His return There would be a reason to want him to come back. It made no sense to fast if he was with them, Jesus is saying. He's revealing something about the essence of fasting. He's introducing a new thought about it, a new way to approach it, a new way to see it in light of his presence. But then he switches metaphors because he's made a point he wants to build on. Pick it up in verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So, of course, if you wash an item of clothing several times, and it shrinks, and it rips, 
You can't patch it with a new cloth. That cloth would then shrink. The patch would tear loose. The original tear would be even worse. The standard skin for wine in the ancient world was goat skin. When you put new wine in a goat skin, the wine would ferment, which let gases out that would expand, stretch the wine skin. New wine went into new wine skins because they could handle that expansion. You couldn't put new wine in an old wine skin because it had already been stretched. So if you did that, it would stretch until it burst. So you lose both the wine and the wine skin. Jesus is saying you can't patch old tears with new cloths or you ruin a garment. You can't fill old wineskins with new wine, or you burst the wineskins. But his point is about two systems of relating to God, the old way of Moses and the new way of Jesus. Jesus has not come to void the law, but he has come to fulfill it. And once it's fulfilled, its purpose has been largely served. Its usefulness for God's people, now that Jesus has come, is relegated. In fact, Jesus is quite clear. If you try to mix law and gospel, which is what he's saying here, you try to mix Moses' way and his way, you'll destroy a person. It won't work. It'll be like a garment or a wineskin. The way of Jesus and the way of the Pharisees are in conflict with one another. The Pharisees are not doing something good in a bad way. Their way is bad. Their approach is bad. Jesus is not... When he comes, creating a hybrid religion that mixes the old and the new, so that Christianity is half old way of the law, half new way of grace, that great unbiblical word that we all use, balance, what Jesus brings cannot be contained by the old way of the law. It won't work. It won't sit well in it. It requires a new carrier. It requires Jesus. The next scene that closes out chapter 2, brings in the Sabbath now. So we have the fasting, or fasting, the Sabbath, which was the sign between God and Israel under the Old Covenant, that they would know He is the Lord who sets them apart for Himself. That comes in now to show us just exactly who this Jesus is and why He has the authority to declare these things, to proclaim a new way. Pick it up in verse 23. One Sabbath... He was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said, I'm sorry, I'll stop at 24 for a minute. The law of God stated that you had to rest from your work one day in seven. It was Saturday for the Jewish people. The religious leaders in Israel during the days of the synagogue had taken that law, built fences of specific regulations around it so that no one would even break it by accident. That's how important it was to them. They created warning labels, right, to keep people from doing unnecessary harm. And, of course, while their prohibitions included many details that weren't found anywhere in Scripture, their traditions became as binding on the people to follow as Scripture itself, as man-made traditions always do. Always, they become gospel. If you don't do something the way you've always done it, you've ruined it, it's bad, right? That's the way it works. That's how we are. There were already 39 types of activity activity you could not do on the Sabbath, including reaping grain, harvesting, which is what the Pharisees accused Jesus' disciples of doing. These men are rigorous about keeping the law to the degree that they made sure other people were as rigorous, but Jesus is better. We pick it up in 25. And he said to them, 
Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus asks these men, have you read your Bibles? Which would have been very offensive to them because of course they had. They were the experts, if you will, in Hebrew scriptures, but apparently they've forgotten, overlooked, ignored the scene from 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 6, when David was a fugitive on the run from Saul. He had gathered a band of men to himself. Sounds familiar, right? Just as Jesus had been doing, traveled throughout the land with them. On one occasion when they didn't have any food, David remembered, that's right, there's some bread within reach of where they were in the tabernacle, sitting on the table of showbread. So he went and asked the priest who gave it to David and his men. It was David, right? It was God's anointed king. He apparently had a right to the bread. Jesus knew the hero of Israel was David. He was their ideal king. But Jesus had been preaching that the kingdom of God had arrived And so had the true king of Israel who would fulfill David's kingdom. And so Jesus, the son of David, appealed to David to silence his critics. Just as in touching the leper, just as in not fasting, Jesus apparently overrides all that would legally prevent him from being merciful. Such is the prerogative of the king. There's a lesson to be drawn from what happened with David and the showbread in the ministry of Jesus and his disciples. And here it is in verse 27. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath day was made for the sake of people. People were not made for the sake of the Sabbath. Do we understand what Jesus is saying then? about the appointed day of rest. It was not meant to become burdensome and for you to worry about keeping. They were never meant to feel unrested by anxiety on the day of rest. The Sabbath was made for their benefit. They were not made to serve the Sabbath. Isn't that precisely what would pervert the day of rest? making people so concerned about not resting that they couldn't rest. The Pharisees had used the force of the law as it was given. That's the, 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 the power they had to use. The law as it was given to weigh people down in addition to how the law already did, as if it wasn't already heavy enough, because that's what we do. Again, it's unavoidable. In order to keep people from being... Um, or from going beyond necessary labor on the Sabbath. Here's an example. They made a rule that it was a sin to tie a knot on the Sabbath. So if somebody accidentally uh, knotted his sandal laces, he had to leave the knot in until the Sabbath was over because untying a knot would be unnecessary work. This is what we do. We always second-guess God's revelation. We always think that what God didn't do is set safeguards around what he did tell you to do. And so we think, we'll do that for you. That's evidence of our fall. That's evidence of our depravity. That's evidence of how we reject grace. It is not evidence that there's something good in us that wants to do good. If we really wanted to do good, we would leave God's word alone and just obey. 
and just believe, but we don't do that. We always have to add to it. And those are the people that normally come to be thought of as righteous. Look how serious they are. They're not serious about God's word. They're serious about their own. There's a huge difference. If you put determining right and wrong in our hands, we will always go too far. Always remember this. We were not meant to have the knowledge of good and evil. We stole that in the garden. Because we wanted to run ourselves and listen to ourselves more than we wanted to listen to God. That's what we do every time we add to the word of God, regardless of our intentions. It's never right. Ever. God's law is not bad in and of itself. It is from him. But that's just the point. It's from God. Because it's so holy, we are utterly unable to respond to it correctly. Now it serves only to show us that, not to bind us up to live in a certain way. The Holy Spirit will do this. We were not made to keep regulations. That's not the way we're meant to live, to know that we're in God's covenant. What comes from God now is meant to heal us, satisfy us, forgive us, keep us, sustain us. Rest was a gift from God, and we couldn't even be still. Do the Pharisees really think that the law, that God would watch a person starve to keep the law? Yes, they do think that. And they will enforce it. They were far too burdened with keeping laws on the Sabbath than to just rest. And ironically, we're surely breaking it every Saturday because of that, at least in their own hearts. The reason we read that God's commandments are not now burdensome, beloved, is precisely because they are not how we gain or keep our standing with God. Therefore, we understand His commandments are beautiful and right and good and honor Him and serve one another. They're no longer, if I don't keep this, I'm out. Now, then, we can truly rest. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 28. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. You see that word so there? How is that word functioning in verse 28? To say that the reason Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath is because the Sabbath was made to serve us, not vice versa. Jesus Christ is Lord of what was made for man. He is the means then by which all God's gracious provision flows down to us, beloved. Therefore... He is also the Lord of the day of rest for mankind. Jesus once again asserts his authority as the son of man in this passage. He not only had the authority to forgive sins, he's also Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus made the Sabbath. He's Lord over it, sovereign over it. And so he's not perverting, he's not disregarding the Sabbath, the need for rest. He proved that rest is precisely, actually, what the Sabbath was Four, the Sabbath is about the restoration of the weary. It was given to show our desperate need for Jesus to give that. Jesus has come to invite us to partake of rest, beloved. Not a new kind of labor, rest. The law no longer keeps us at arm's length. That's not how it functions now. And so Mark drives his point home. Look at the first six verses of Chapter 3, again he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. 
and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, to the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately had counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus not only declares his authority over the Sabbath and over all creation, he demonstrates it here. He proves it. The Pharisees and scribes have begun watching Jesus all the more closely to see if he's going to break the law, act unlawfully. Now, if you were Jesus, you knew you had a target on your back, how would you conduct yourself? If you were going to heal, wouldn't you reserve healing for like the most severe cases? And wouldn't you try to do it away from the watching eye of the religious leaders who are out to get you? We have to remember 2.17, Jesus is on a mission. A withered hand is not a life-threatening disease. It wouldn't have been a big deal to do it tomorrow. Just wait, save yourself the trouble, but Jesus will not delay his compassion. He doesn't need to. He asks them in verse 4, is it lawful? Remember, that's the word they used back in 2.24. That's what they cared about. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? They're ready to bring charges against Jesus to execute him. We know from 2.8, though, that Jesus is able to perceive precisely what they're thinking in their hearts anyway, They are violating the sanctity of the Sabbath much more than Jesus is by plotting, anxious to destroy a life, to kill on the Sabbath. He's putting them on the spot with this question. How dare you accuse me of violating the Sabbath when you're considering and working in your minds how to get rid of me, how to take a life, how to kill. Beloved, we find in verse 5 that Jesus gets angry with hypocritical, self-righteous, religious leaders. The Greek word Mark uses here for anger is not simple annoyance. It's not even righteous indignation. It's the word for fury. So it's always a good, probing, heart-revealing question to consider. What made Jesus furious? Read through the Gospels. What made him furious? And then compare it to what makes us furious. Are they the same things? Or do we get furious at the people and places Jesus would have been showing compassion? Not condoning sin. And making that argument every time you bring up being compassionate to sinners. Right? Every time somebody has to say, well, we don't want to compromise. We don't want to look like we're condoning sin. Making that argument is usually an escape for having to be compassionate to certain kinds of sinners. If showing compassion to sinners equals condoning sin and compromising, then just know you would have been among the Pharisees and scribes condemning Jesus for his actions. You would have been saying that what Jesus is doing is not lawful to do. Jesus was furious 
that people cared more about their traditions and the law than they cared about people who needed God's compassion and salvation. And he was grieved at their hardness of heart. Jesus had compassion for them too. Because he's a savior, beloved. Some people don't know they're sick. Everybody's sick. Everybody needs a physician. But Jesus is grieving here because not everybody realizes it. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, Jesus says, but sinners. That's all of us. And Jesus was resolute here. No hesitation. He healed the man's hand. Verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So the old wineskins of the world, they are bursting, aren't they? The cloth is tearing, isn't it? The Herodians were those who supported Herod, who was arguably the nastiest of the corrupt kings who ruled Israel. Represented the, the Herodians represented the Roman occupying power, its political system. In any country the Romans conquered, they'd bring in their own people, set up their own rulers, and they brought Greek culture and philosophy with them. The Greek approach to sex and the body, the Greek approach to truth, all that was a part of Roman occupation. So if you were one of the societies they conquered, like Israel was, you would feel assaulted, like you were losing your country by all these immoral, cosmopolitan, pagan values, right? Some things never change. And there were often cultural resistance movements to those values they were trying to bring in. And in Israel, that movement was the Pharisees. That was their task. They focused on living by the Hebrew Scriptures. They created, obviously, various safeguards to protect themselves from these pagan influences so that they wouldn't be compromised by them. The Herodians moved with the times. The Pharisees stressed traditional values. The Pharisees worried their society was being overwhelmed by the pagans. So they called for a return to traditional things. In other words, these two groups were longtime enemies who never worked together. Polar opposites. And they finally unite. Because they both have to get rid of Jesus. 3.6 hints at one of the main themes of the whole New Testament. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the new and living way he brought into the world, is offensive to both the religious and the irreligious. Neither moralism nor relativism can cooperate with the gospel. And so Psalm 2 is fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Remember, the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed to kill Him, to remove Him from the face of the earth. The bonds of His gracious salvation must be broken by those who would earn their salvation and by those who believe salvation is found within, in the self. But in Mark's Gospel, make no mistake, It's the religious people who take the lead in the plot to kill Jesus. The approach to life taken by the Pharisees is the traditional values approach, which is moral conformity, right? It's the belief that you must lead a very, very good life. That's probably how most of us here where we live view the world or, or 
how a person becomes a good person or what makes them a good person, what makes a person right with God even. The progressive, which of course is probably a more urbanite thing by and large, the progressive approach taken by the Herodians is self-conformity. One has to figure out for oneself what is right and wrong for you personally. Everything's subjective, but Scripture reveals that both of these are just ways of being your own Lord and Savior. Both are hostile to the message of Jesus. And both, both lead a person to being self-righteous and trusting in their self-righteousness to save them. The moralist says the good people are in and the bad people are out. The progressive says the open-minded people are in and the judgmental bigots are out. And of course, we're the open-minded ones. We're so much better than people that think they're better than everybody, right? That's the progressive mindset. Self-discovery then leads to as much superiority and self-righteousness as moralistic religion does. But then in steps Jesus. The gospel does not say the good people are in and the bad people are out. And it doesn't say the open-minded people are in and the judgmental bigots are out. The gospel says the humble are in and the proud are out. The people who know they aren't better than anyone, they're in. They're not more open-minded. They're not more moral. The people who are sure they are right on their own, they're out. Jesus Christ lays the groundwork here for his own kind of religion. The old way of relating to God is ending and a new way is taking shape. And the two, again, cannot be mixed to form a hybrid. That's his whole point. Where a relationship with God is half laws and rules, half grace and mercy. And we need to ask ourselves here, why doesn't closeness to God result from being so concerned with keeping rules, being a good person, and not breaking the law. How does that not only not make you close to God, but actually get you further from Him? How is that the case? Why do those who are so intent on living that way to honor God with their lives end up conspiring with pagans to murder Jesus? How did that happen? Beloved, because obsession with rules is a lack of obsession with grace. Grace is offensive to rule-keeping because grace renders rule-keeping as not just unnecessary, but dangerous. None of us are in the position to try to be more righteous than Jesus. Nothing here needs to be added to nothing. Do we realize the offense it is to his person and work when we go beyond what the scripture has said to create rules? Even if they're just safeguards to prevent us from breaking the actual ones. How do we not understand that's precisely the spirit of the Pharisees? The Bible says we shouldn't do this, so we need to make sure we do this so that we don't do that. You're saying this isn't enough, God. Your word is not enough. We'll safeguard it. We'll make sure nobody breaks it. And then what do we do? We covenant with one another. We promise each other to not do the thing that we added to it, which makes us define our whole faith by it. Why do we not understand that puts us in league with his enemies, not his friends? It's not that rules are bad. 
You know, it's that we're saying what you gave is not enough. What you're saying is not enough. That's the problem. It's a lack of faith. It's a lack of belief. And we are only saved by believing. It cuts at the heart of everything we are when we add to what has been said with what hasn't been said. We don't have the ability to do that properly, to do it well, or we end up creating things like, don't spray this ammonia in your eyes. What? Okay. Right? Don't, don't do this because of this. Don't go there because of, you might do this. When is that not true? When is it not true that you might not sin? As if rules are the key to not sinning. Right? I, I, I know I've talked about this before. It's probably been a while. But why don't we safeguard potlucks to make sure nobody is a glutton? Right? We don't worry about that sin. Why? Why? The Lord hates it. Why don't, why don't we create rules to prevent gluttony? Huh? Would you look across a restaurant if you saw somebody having a, a second cheeseburger and think, mm-mm-mm. They just, they're just compromising. They're not, they don't care about the word. He's enough. And his word's enough. And to think we can improve on it is blasphemy. And it can't be a part of who we are here. And it won't be. Just so we're clear. One of the problems with legalism is that it makes you neurotic, right? Not just about your own sins, but the sins and sinfulness of others, which makes it impossible for us, despite how holy we're trying to be, to live and minister as Jesus did. And so in our quest to become godly and be holy, which is a good thing, we end up looking nothing like Jesus. In fact, we end up looking like those who, if he was here, he would be furious with. Why do we never see ourselves in that group? We just do what they did. We just don't know our Bibles as well as they did. What I need from Jesus before I have any other conversation about him is an abundance of compassion and mercy and grace from him. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here. I think scripture teaches we're meant to relate to God mainly as a needy people. Not people he's assisting in our quest to become righteous. That's the ground of my standing and confidence before God, who Jesus is. What Jesus has obeyed for me and credited to my account as though I obeyed. God never relaxes his law. God never compromises his holiness. That's precisely why Jesus came. Because our attempts at it compromise it and make it foolish and obeyable which denigrates the holiness of God. You could keep 600 couple rules and you're holy. No, no, no. God is way more holy than that. That is the ground of my standing and confidence before God. How did that happen? How did sinners get confidence before God? How did people who believed in the Lord go from being so afraid they were messing up So neurotic to being confident to stand in his presence. Did we get better? No. 
That's what Jesus is doing. He's establishing a new way where there's no longer fear and doubt. A people who love him but are no longer so neurotic about theirs or others' own sinfulness. Listen to these words. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope, our hope, not our works, our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. It is finally the faithfulness of Jesus on my behalf that gets me eternal life. I have faith in his faithfulness. I have faith in his forgiveness. I have faith in his righteousness. We don't need to worry about good works. The the nearer we draw to Christ, the more we will want to do the things that reflect him, that please him, that serve other people. God doesn't need your good works to accept you. Your neighbor needs them to know him. That's Hebrews 10, I read 19 through 23. Through his flesh, his incarnation on the earth, Jesus opened a new and living way for us to draw near to God that brings with it complete confidence, a clean conscience, full assurance. Notice all that was new. You see that in Hebrews 10? All of that was new. It was not that way. You did not have those things, full assurance, a clean conscience, washed clean. You did not have that under the old. The old way was the way of law. Now, now we need to consider how, as the text that I read from in Hebrews will go on to say, now in light of the new and living way, we need to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works because we can't do that anymore by means of the law. By means of guilt, by means of pressure, by means of manipulation. That is no longer how we stir up one another to love and good works. We have a new and living way now. That's not how you get things done. Threats. That's not how we're made clean enough to be in or to know God's saving presence with us. Healing that man's hand was exactly what the Sabbath was all about. It was about restoring the diminished, replenishing the drained. The Sabbath was pointing all along to precisely what Jesus Christ would do for humanity. Then, Give us rest. Replenish and restore us, repair us, make us whole. The law could not do that, and that hasn't changed. The law is always the law. There's a reason Paul will call it the ministry of death. That's its function. We try to live by it. It cannot cannot be mixed with grace. All it can do as it relates to grace is prove to us how badly we need it. What the Pharisees prove is that being so concerned with regulations, when we ourselves are in need of grace from God more than anything else, prevents us from drawing near to or ever being like Jesus. Talk about missing the forest for the trees. 
Right? We're not the kind of people who are able to draw near to God because of how good we are. That's not what a church is. That's not what a church should portray. Because then the only people that will ever come in our doors are people that think they belong here. I don't want it to be that way. And so maybe in the name of Jesus it gets a little uncomfortable, but at least it would be the way of Jesus. Somewhere along the lines of observing the Sabbath and keeping it holy, the Pharisees came to believe that the Sabbath was about ceasing from work, not about resting. You see that? That which brings rest is Sabbath. Which means since Jesus brings true rest, eternal rest, He is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is the Lord of true rest, beloved. He always has been. He always will be. And in Him, the Lord of the Sabbath, the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. In Him is the righteousness and wisdom of God incarnate. To see Jesus is to see the Father in all His blazing righteous holiness. To have Him is to be loved by the Father. Jesus did not come to reform the old way of relating to God through the law, but to end it, to fulfill it. Complete it and take its place. The gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't need any silly man-made warning labels to keep its adherents safe. Jesus keeps us safe. Jesus keeps us redeemed. Jesus keeps us forgiven. Jesus keeps us righteous. All the system can do is show us our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. Therefore, the law will always be an insufficient Savior. Not because it's bad, but because you and I cannot keep it. We can't be saved through it. Pre or post-belief, you will not be saved by your obedience. You don't have to go out and try to disobey. That's not the point. The point is, you are going to disobey. You're going to need a Savior. We're going to fall short. The, the Romans doesn't say for all their sin and fallen short of the glory of God, but when they got saved, they lived such a way that they didn't attain the glory of God. No, 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 no. Jesus does that. And that's what should be heard when we're speaking in the name of Jesus. That's what was being heard when Jesus was speaking. They understood him very clearly. They just hated it. That's what we need. Come by the new and living way. Come by that way. Brought to us by Jesus. Come and be set free. Come and be washed clean. Come and be made whole. And if you have been, remember that's who you are. Go to the Word. Trust the Spirit. Remember whose and who you are. And never stop coming to Jesus. Because Jesus plus nothing equals everything.